0: Holy Father, is there yet something we must do? If so, teach us and give us the faith that will not shrink and the courage that will not disobey. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. On this weekend, when the nation remembers a legacy, of Dr. Martin Luther King, Jr. Recall with me for a moment his now famous words spoken in 1963. i put them on the screen for you. They're in your study guide. Dr. King speaking. 11 o'clock Sunday morning is the most segregated hour of the week. <laughs> Write that in. 11 o'clock Sunday morning is the most segregated hour of the week, and the Sunday school is still the most segregated school. Hey, but listen, that was 1963. It's different today, right? Time Magazine reports that 2007 surveys reveal that fewer, get this, fewer than 8% of American congregations evidence any significant Racial mix. So what's a significant racial mix? Uh, Michael Emerson, a specialist on race and faith at Rice University, suggests a 20% or more minimum of minority membership would indicate significant racial mix. That would be one out of five minimum significant racial mix. But with fewer than 8% of American congregations revealing that mix, obviously, Dr. King, his observation appears to still be true. The most segregated hour of the week is at 11 o'clock at worship. Leading Time Magazine in the January 11, 2010 issue to put it this way. Put it on the screen for you. You'll have to fill it in. In an age of mixed-race malls, mixed-race pop culture music charts, and yes, a mixed-race president... The church divide seems increasingly peculiar. It is troubling, even scandalous, that our most intimate public gatherings and those most safely beyond the law's reach remain color-coded. Write that in. Color-coded. Are we a color-coded church? Does the Seventh-day Adventist church in the United States Live by a color code? Today's teaching, we will explore for that answer. Today's teaching entitled, Who are only undefeated because we have gone on trying. This little mini-series, that's a line straight out of T.S. Eliot. Who have only gone on undefeated because we have gone on trying. The truth in black and white. you're watching on television right now, go to that website, www.pmchurch.tv. The study guide and the quotations that we share here, they're all yours. Look for the truth in black and white. There's a single line in the New Testament that I believe is a radical call to you who are young in the church today. I want to tell you something. It is a controversial call to the young. The line is going to seem innocuous to you when you look it up in just a moment. But I believe this one line holds a radical key for the young to lead this church out of our color-coded past and our color-coded present. Take a look at this line. Open your Bible to the New Testament. 1 Timothy chapter 4. If you didn't bring your Bible, you got, you got to read this. Pull the pew Bible out in front of you. 1 Timothy chapter 4. Drop down to verse 12. Just one line. It's page uh, 799, by the way, in the Pew Bible. I'll be in the New International Version. So it'll be on the screen. Just one line. Let me read it with you. 1 Timothy chapter 4, verse 12. Don't uh, Paul writing to the young Timothy. All right? Don't let anyone look down on you because you are young. But set an example for the believers in speech, in life, in love, in faith, and in purity. Did you get that? Paul's writing to this young pastor and he says, Hey, listen, boy, don't you let anybody, don't you let anybody look down on you just because you're young. You know, it's easy for us to stereotype one another on the basis of age. Don't we do it? Sure. The young look on the elders as rigidly stuck in the past. The elders look on the young as recklessly committed to change. But Paul isn't writing to the elders. He's writing to the youngers. You know what he's saying? Jot it down. He's saying, hey, listen, don't you let anybody intimidate you or look down upon you because of your youthful inexperience. Instead, I want you to seize the initiative and lead the church by your youthful example. I like that. Let me read that line again. Verse 12, don't let anyone look down on you because you are young, but set an example for the believers in speech, in life, in love, in faith, and in purity. By the way, whenever you set an example, you are automatically a leader. Somebody's going to follow. So, how shall the young, you who are young, how shall the young leave the church today? How did that Time Magazine quotation go? Let me read it again to you that line. It is troubling, even scandalous, that our most intimate public gatherings and those most safely beyond the law's reach remain color coded. Are we a color coded church? For me. It is an amazing anomaly of contemporary Adventism in the United States that within our world community of faith, only in this country is the church divided into white and black administrative regions or conferences. So that in the northeastern and southern and central half of the United States, Adventist congregations and conferences are administratively divided by race. So you have black churches administered by what are called regional conferences. And you have white churches administered by what are called, I guess, regular conferences. The Seventh-day Adventist Encyclopedia. Six pages are devoted to the history of this this unique administrative rationale. And this judicatory separation that began in 1945-1946. I want you to read the words, so they're in your study guide. I'll put them on the screen for you as well. The regional conferences, speaking of our community of faith, I realize we have people watching from other communities of faith. Trust me, every community of faith I know of still struggles. So this is ours. The regional conferences were formed in the hope that the new organizations might, with concentration on work within a specific ethnic group, achieve greater results in a shorter space of time than would be achieved under the previously existing organizations. So here are some benefits. Number one, the plan has been responsible for an evangelistic penetration into the African-American community that had not been possible under the organizations that formally administered the work among the nation's African-American membership. All right. Number two, the regional conferences... Also have created more opportunities for leadership and participation by gifted and trained African-American young people of the church whose selection in the same or similar capacities had not worked out in the years prior to the formation of the regional conferences. And finally, number three. Another practical result has been that African American members of the Seventh day Adventist Church have been more readily and more naturally represented in elected offices and on boards and committees outside the regional conferences than appears to have been true formally. And to the degree, ladies and gentlemen, this unique administrative organization has grown the kingdom of Christ in this nation, I praise God. Hallelujah. Having read the six pages of history, I understand how a church that reflected the social values and mores of a culture in which it existed, I can understand how in order to create leadership parity and facilitate ethnic evangelistic focus, the leaders of the church would vote to establish a separate new administrative organization based upon race. But, I can also understand in all candor that to anybody looking in from the outside... This unique administrative organization would certainly could certainly appear to be an arrangement of separate but equal, which I remind you is the prevailing social norm in the 1940s and 50s and 60s. You worship God there. We worship God here. You lead the church there. We lead the church here. But we will be all united, brothers and sisters, together in one family. That may have worked in 1945 when the plan was instituted. But in this new age of Barack Obama, President of the United States of America, does the 1940s rationale still hold water? Separate but equal churches? Separate but equal congregations? Separate but equal conferences? Or has this administrative strategy outlived its ability to justify itself any longer in a society that no longer believes in separate but equal? After all, isn't that what the South African church was told when the nation, their nation rejected apartheid? And church leaders here directed the church over there to merge its separate but equal conferences? Why then would it be any different for the church in the United States? Ah, yeah, but come on, Dwight, it can't be done. It's simply too complicated. We've gone too far to change. Have we? Have we? Let me share with you two reasons why I believe change can happen. Jot these down, please. Number one, because of what Jesus' last prayer was. Because of what Jesus' last prayer was. Let's read his last prayer. I need you to see his words for yourself. The final prayer of Christ. It's called his, in John 17, it's called his high priestly prayer. The last prayer before Gethsemane. John chapter 17, page 729 in your pew Bible. Let's read that last prayer. A portion of it. John chapter 17, verse 20. Boy, if you haven't read letter Bible, these, these ought to be bright red, these words now. John 17, verse 20. My prayer, Jesus praying. My prayer is not for them alone. His disciples, 11 of them now, not 12, 11 of them surround Him. He said, "Oh Father, my prayer is not for them alone. I pray also for those who will believe in Me through their message. Guess what? That's you and me. That's us. You're a Christian and I'm a Christian today because of the disciples' testimony. That's the only reason we are Christians. I'm not only praying for these eleven, Father. I'm praying for everybody who will follow them and follow me. I pray also for those who will believe in me through their, through their message. Verse 21, that all of them may be one, Father, just as you are in me and I am in you. May they also be in us so that the world may believe that you have sent me. Verse 22, I have given them the glory that you gave me, that they may be one as we are one. I in them and you in me. May they be brought to complete unity to let the world know that you sent me and have loved them even as you have loved me. Isn't that amazing? Would you jot that down, please? Jesus' prayer is that they may be one. That's O-N-E. That they may be one so that the world may be one. That's W-O-N. The whole point of unity is to win this world and convince it, Jesus' way is the right way. Please. That they may be two? No. That they may be one. Then the world will be one. Apparently, two is not an effective evangelistic strategy for church growth. Shut it down, will you? Jesus declares that it is through complete unity, that's the NIV rendition, that we will reach the world. That they may be one. That they may be one. That's Christ's last prayer. This is not wishful thinking. This is Jesus' last prayer for the church. And if He prays it, can't God answer it? Please. Or rather, if we pray it, Can't Christ give to us the unity that we desire? That we may be one, O Christ, even as you and the Father are one. Make us, make us, O Christ, make us one. Please. How can any strategy... Just think about this with me for a moment. How can any strategy that appears to the world to be a separating strategy rather than a uniting strategy, how can it possibly convince the world that what we have to offer is desirable when even the world has rejected racial separation? Who wants to join a church like that? I mean, you don't have mandated black sports and mandated white sports, do you? You don't have mandated white automobile companies and mandated black automobile companies, the only automobile companies we have are broke. <laughs> That's all we have. You don't have, hey listen, you don't have mandated black dioceses, and white dioceses, and Hispanic dioceses, and Asian dioceses. So why should we have color coded black conferences? And white conferences? Why? When Jesus' last prayer was simply that they may, that they, Father, 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 that they may be one. There are two reasons why I believe change can happen. Number one, because Jesus asked for it. And when our Lord prays it, He persists at it until He gets it. Hallelujah. Number one, because of Jesus' last prayer. And number two, jot it down. Here's why I believe change can happen. Because of Jesus' last people. Perhaps because of who Jesus' last people could be. And now I'm thinking of you who are young. Because it is the young that I believe through the young change can happen. I want the rest of you to look at the young seated all around us here. Every other pew. Take a look at the young seated around us. They're all over this campus. Do you know what? This generation of young is the most colorblind generation ever to live in this nation and ever to live in this church. I mean, you think about it. God has raised this generation up for such a time as this. They don't live in a color-coded world like their elders do. They intermarry. They interplay. They interwork. They interstudy. They interlive, and God has raised them up so that they might introduce us. How to live and worship and embrace a mission without cover codes. I mean, isn't that that Paul's point? 1 Timothy 4, verse 12. Go back to it one last time. 1 Timothy 4, verse 12. Put it on the screen. What's Paul saying? Don't let anyone look down on you because you are young. Keep it up. You're what the church needs. Don't let anybody look down on you because you are young, but set an example for the believers. Show them how to do it. Just set an example. Show them how. Set an example for the believers in speech, in life, in love, in faith, and in purity. You who are young... Set an example for the rest. That's Paul's point. So what kind of example should the young set for us? On this Martin Luther King Jr. weekend, let me close by sharing with you, you who are young, three ways you can help your church live and serve without a color code. Jot these down. Three ways. Number one, make sure your own heart is not color coded. Make sure your own heart is not color-coded. Racial prejudice is easy to spot in others, but much more difficult to spot in myself. In fact, let me put it on the screen for you. The word for prejudice is literally, in the English, prejudge. You've heard of judicial? That's what it is, prejudicial. Prejudice means prejudged. That means before I've ever met you. Before you ever met me. We've already, we, you and I have already come to some conclusions. I have prejudged you because you're black, because you're white. I prejudged you because you're Asian, because you're Latino. I have prejudged you because you are rich, because you are poor. I have prejudged you because you are educated, because you are uneducated. When we prejudge, before we even meet, I've already come to a conclusion. I've prejudged. That's what prejudice is. And that's why it kills. It kills. I have a book in my library called Bias and the Pious. It's a great book. I pulled it back out this week and read the book through again. It's written by James Diddy. Fascinating. Listen to this. He reports on research that has found that those who are conservative in their social values, that would be most of us evangelicals, all right? Those those who are conservative in their social values are more likely to be racially prejudiced. Watch this. I'll put the words on the screen for you. More conservative attitudes... On these issues, and he's just talked about war, divorce, capital punishment, abortion, socialized medicine, rehabilitation of prisoners, and welfare. More conservative attitudes on these issues are correlated with more restricted and prejudice like attitudes on racial issues. Now he quickly goes on. To be sure, the correlation is not perfect. There are many non prejudiced individuals with conservative social views, hallelujah, and vice versa, but the correlation is more likely than not. Make sure your own heart is not color-coded. How? This is even more fascinating. Didi reports on a study that has discovered a correlation between religious practice and attitudes toward minorities. Watch this. Put these words on the screen, please. Most notable... Speaking of religious religious practice, most notable was concern for the devotional life. Now, hold on to your pew. Persons who thought that prayer and devotional life were important were more likely to hold favorable and tolerant attitudes toward minorities. Isn't that something? You want to to get over a color-coded life? Here's what you do. Make sure every day of your life, you are alone with Jesus. Every day. And your color-coded bias... Will be seeped away. Every day you get alone with Jesus. Here's what you do pull out your Gospels. I don't care if you start in Mark. I don't care. You may wish to begin in Matthew, Luke, John. Doesn't matter to me. Just stick with that Gospel. One story a day from that Gospel. One story a day. You're focusing on Jesus. And why don't you just try to see how Jesus deals with people who are radically or racially different from Him? It's all through the Gospels. Especially Luke, by the way. In fact, you know what? If you only, if you only read the story of Calvary every day of your life, Do you realize how many racially and radically different people Jesus is dying with that Friday? I mean, you think about it. A North African carried Jesus' cross behind him. I wonder what Jesus said to that African when the cross was handed back to him. A North African carried his cross behind him. A thief confessed Jesus' lordship beside him. A pagan Roman declared Jesus' divinity beneath him. He's surrounded. Just watch Jesus. Here's your prayer every day. Lord, at the end of your worship time, Lord, please, show me. Help me. Give me your heart for those who are racially different from me. That's for everybody, by the way. Everybody has racially different people. Right? Of course. Number one. Make sure your own heart is not color-coded. Jot it down. Number two, cross the lines and choose a church with racial mix. If the young would ignore the artificial boundaries that separate congregations and even conferences, you would upset the apple cart eventually. If you and your interracial friends would join churches where you aren't in the majority, you could recalibrate calibrate the racial mix of that congregation. So when your interracial friends say, hey, come with me, it's as simple as that. Go with them. Set an example for the rest. Number one, make sure your own heart is not color-coded. Number two, cross the lines and choose a church with racial mix. And finally, number three, talk to your leaders and ask them why we have to be separate but equal. It is time for you to take a proactive interest in your own community of faith. There is no point in being caught, caught up in your old young world to the exclusion of addressing, addressing issues of life and mission within your home congregation. Talk to your leaders. Hey, by the way, hey, hey, hey. By the way, I know your leaders. I know almost all of them. They are godly men and women. I already know. Listen. Sometimes, sometimes, all a leader needs is a word of encouragement to realize that what his heart has been telling him is what a new generation of young Christians, of new Adventists, is also believing. He just needs a word of encouragement. Sometimes, as leaders, we are afraid that any reorganizing might put us out of a job. So here's what you got to do. Bring your bright mind. God has given you a bright mind. Bring your bright mind to bear and prayerfully wrestle over with your leaders what a solution to our separate but equal conferences might look like. Dialogue with your church leaders. Ask them questions. Wonder out loud with them. How would it work? Could we do it like this? You know, whenever some people hear talk about doing away with two, a two-conference paradigm, they immediately assume that this suggestion means shutting down all the regional conferences. Not at all. You could shut them all down, figuratively, and then recognize those, those regions so that in a united conference, leaders from both constituencies would be blended together in a new administrative paradigm. Just shut them all down. Start over. Two constituencies now. Blend. Hey, Listen. I don't have the solution. But we have some very bright minds who are the young of the church today. Bring your mind to bear and set an example for the believers. Sit down and talk with your leaders. Who says it can't be done? Who says it's too complicated? Somebody once said, I am praying that they may be one as we are one. I believe that someone has the solution already in his nail-scarred hand. And he's just waiting for somebody to ask for it. You're the one. You're it. Finally, before I end with a story, I want to appeal to young conference administrative leaders in our church today. Significant change requires a bold leader willing like Jesus to sacrifice himself if necessary for the good of the church and for the good of the world. You may be that young administrator. And while more seasoned administrators may have tried to assure you that it cannot be done, you may be the very one the Spirit of God has raised up for such a time as this to show us how, in fact, it can be done. All it takes is one leader to persuade another leader and then another. And soon the numbers and the votes will tilt In favor of change, I remind you that that is precisely what happened in the New Testament church, where the infusion of new Gentile members and new Gentile leaders eventually silenced the argument from some of the elders that Jews and Gentiles need to remain two separate but equal communities in the church. Keep them separate, they said. But then a leader arose named Paul. He was a Jew, but he championed the cause of the Gentiles. And that artificial wall came down. Young administrator, you may be whom God has been waiting for to help the church you love answer the prayer of Jesus and the two become one. That they may be one. Let me end with a story. They're still calling it. The miracle in Memphis. Let me read a line or two. The two largest Pentecostal denominations in the United States, one black and one white, on October 17, uh, 1994, sent their delegates to the city of Memphis. Listen. Listen. When the delegates arrived in Memphis on October 17, 1994, there was an electric air of expectation that something wonderful was about to happen. The conference theme was Pentecostal Partners, a Reconciliation Strategy for 21st Century Ministry. Over 3,000 persons attended the evening sessions in the Dixon Myers Hall of the Cook Convention Center in downtown Memphis. Everyone was aware of the racial strife in Memphis where Martin Luther King Jr. was assassinated in 1968. Here it was hoped a great racial healing would take place. The moment of paradigm shift came the next day. A black bishop had stood before the delegates and he he had declared, Brothers and sisters, I commit my love to you. There are problems down the road, but a strong commitment to love will overcome them all. And suddenly there was a stir. Among those delegates, unbeknownst to everybody, the Assemblies of God, which is a dominantly white or was a dominantly white uh, denomination. Donald Evans, pastor of the Tampa, Florida Assemblies of God Church, had slipped out of his seat, had gone back behind the stage, had rummaged in one of the offices and had had found a cookie tin. He came to those who were guarding the platform. He's not on the program. He told them what he wished to do. He said, all right. Donald Evans, holding this cookie tin, went to the bishop, the leader of the black Pentecostal denomination. And kneeling down at that man's feet, his cookie tin filled with water, he began to weep. And as he wept and washed the feet of this startled administrator, he confessed out loud the sins of his white brothers and sisters who had led to this division. A spirit of weeping began to sweep over the delegates. And then the pastor of the largest black Pentecostal church in Los Angeles, jumped to his feet. He ran up onto that platform, took the cookie tin now with water used. And he walked over to the superintendent of the assemblies of God and he knelt down and he confessed that his black brothers and sisters had done wrong to allow this separation. And would you please forgive us too? Everybody's weeping now. The next day, the black and white branches of the Pentecostal movement, representing more than 5 million followers in the United States alone, representing more than 5 million followers, voted to dissolve the two associations of Pentecostal denominations, one black and one white, which had separated them since 1914 to form a new multi-ethnic organization aimed at reuniting their churches. And they called it, and in all the literature today, the name is stuck. The Miracle in Memphis. Ladies and gentlemen, it is time for our own miracle too. You who are young and in Christ are the key. You can help us answer the prayer of Jesus that they may be one. Even as you and I, Father, are one. I'm appealing to you. Do whatever it takes. Let God lead you to help us answer Jesus' prayer. What do you say?